Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The year is 1974. And these five hippies have just learned that Saturn is in retrograde. The movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film and determine whether or not that film is worthy enough to go into outer space because Amy and I are building a master list, a hundred great films from all around the world, you know, give or take, uh, to represent film history it's been a pleasure doing this with you, and we are right now in the beginning of our third season. The horror season is upon us. It is officially Scaretober, and Amy, this is a classic that I have to say, I was legitimately nervous to watch. <laughs> are you a little baby who doesn't like blood? I truthfully... I don't like the feeling of, and we talked about this last week a little bit, like the saw or um, hostile. I don't want to be totally grossed out. I don't mind being scared, but I get nervous when I feel like it's going to be mutations or graphic violence. Um, but spoiler alert, it's surprisingly not that graphic, but hella scary. And yeah, I said hella scary. I don't know if I used it right. I feel... Uh, awkward now that I say it, but it is like terrifying from the get go. Like I was like, as the titles rolled, I was like, oh boy. And I know we're going to get into it, but I just want to say like, I, this is the first movie that we've put on where I was like, I'm a little nervous here. I'm, like, I'm I had to like brace myself for what we were about to see. <laughs> I know the one night that I had chosen to watch it happened to be the one night in three years when LA had a lightning and thunderstorm. I was like, great, great timing, great timing, Nicholson. Saturn is in retrograde. But I should say, clearly, maybe right here, if you are a person who 
does not like blood. Actually, you do have my empathy. I have not watched a hostel either. And I've only seen the Chris Rock saw, which I know is very weird. Uh, I, that, <laughs> I get weird about like, people chipping teeth, people pulling oh. nails. I don't like that stuff either. I can't handle it. If you are nervous about that, there really isn't that much blood in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is just psychologically and atmospherically terrifying. But if you're a blood phobe, you might maybe be okay. Maybe. I Well, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the directing of this film, and again, we're going to break this down. This is normally our, our pre-chat. But I will say um, a lot is done like an old 1940s or 1950s movie where quick cuts allow your mind to go to places that are a lot worse than what you actually are seeing. And I think that's what I found so exciting about this movie is like, oh, wow, this is actually really well done. Like they probably could have amped up the gore. It wasn't like someone was over their shoulder being like, oh, you can't do this. But because a lot of it exists in your head, I think this movie carries a weight to it that is a lot more. uh, It's terrifying. The movie is terrifying without being gross. I think that's fair. I mean, it's definitely I'm not like on the idea not of gross. gross. I mean, there's a lot of gack. And I mean, it's goo. definitely gross. Well, look, we have a whole we have a whole show to break <laughs> it all down. Um, but what we're doing now is trying to sway comfort you. the people who are a little nervous to watch. Yeah, I think it's worth the watch. Uh, I'm a scaredy cat when it comes to stuff like this, and uh, and yeah, I I had a great. Great time watching this movie and was also incredibly freaked out, but not freaked out like someone was going to be coming in here. Like my wife, uh, who was immediately afraid that Malignant was going to break into our house after we watched Malignant. And I was like, well, that doesn't, first of all, Malignant's not coming after you unless you did something to Malignant. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, this is not a movie where I'm nervous. Look, basically this movie tells you one thing. If you don't go to our house, we're not going to come to your house. So I'm okay with those rules. Like ultimately, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm fine. I'm not going to check into those hotels. I'm not going to go to that farmhouse. So these characters can live there. I'm not afraid of them knocking on my door. It's not like The Strangers. (laughs) And that movie, that movie got me. Yeah. There is something very Texan about that. I mean, as a preface, as we get into this episode, I am from Texas. Texas has been in the news a lot lately for awful things. Mm Mm-hmm. The Texas that is doing these awful things doesn't really match the Texas that I feel like is the, how the majority of Texans feel, which is live and let live, live and let live. Like, that's a very much like you don't knock on my ranch house. I won't knock on your ranch house kind of place. And uh, I guess there's a lesson in that movie for all of us, except well, now, like the wrong people have the chainsaws and they're not listening. Well, Amy, I will say that our conversation about what horror movies we're going to be doing in this series continues to go on on the Discord. That's discord.gg slash Paul Shear. You can go there. There's a whole unspooled group that is breaking it down. It's still also going on in our Facebook group, which is being run by some amazing moderators as well. So uh, keep the conversation going because we are looking to you to pick some of these horror films and we're trying to put them together in the best way possible, knowing that, again, it's just uh, one paintbrush swipe on the horror canvas. Like, we're just going to do a little bit because, you know, we could do a whole show about great horror Well, I have to tell you. Yeah. that That's not paint. Oh, God. Oh, no. Blood? Is it blood? <laughs> All right. Yes. Let's, let's put on our masks. Let's get Grandpa out of the closet. And let's get ready to unspool it. The year is 1974. President Nixon resigns following the Watergate scandal. 
Heiress Patty Hearst is kidnapped and brainwashed into joining a bank heist. Arthur Fry invents the post-it, not Michelle from Michelle and Romy's High School Reunion. And Mia Farrow graces the very first People magazine. The popular shows are All in the Family, Sanford and Son, and Chico and the Man. The hot movies this year are films that we have done here on the show, including Chinatown and The Godfather Part Two, And, very interestingly, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, two classic Mel Brooks films in the same year. And it makes me go, I want to do a little bit of a Mel Brooks series, at least on those two. And today's film, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? What was on the radio? Tell me all the details, please. Oh, you got it. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is directed by Toby Hooper from a script by him and Kim Hankel. Here's what it's about. Five young hippies drive into Texas ranch land. One escapes and she is screaming and covered in blood and chased by Leatherface, who can best be described as a mute butcher with a chainsaw who lives with his very effed up family in a house covered in bones. Tons of bones, real bones found by the production designer. Uh, Other people in Leatherface's family are the kind of cracked out hitchhiker. There's a smooth talking barbecue master. And there is a near-death grandpa upstairs who likes to suck on blood from human fingers. Uh, as for the victims of the five of them, the two most of note are Marilyn Burns as Sally. She's the one who survives. And Paul A. Partain as her brother Franklin, who also spends the movie in a wheelchair. Now, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is nasty and brutal. And that is just the story of the filming, which took place on a microscopic budget in the height of summer. And due to some financial hijinks that we'll get into, essentially paid no one who suffered through it, uh, even after the movie became the highest grossing indie film of its day, which is very painful. Uh, so take a listen. There's no, no phone here. We, 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 have to, we have to drive over to the children's. Take it easy. Take it easy. Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out on October 1st, 1974, and the hit song on the charts was also a chart topper from Out of the Blue. It was Olivia Newton John and her very first hit, I Honestly Love You. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a pop quiz. I'm going to play a bit of the song. And then I will tell you of the movie's own horror connection if you cannot remember and guess it. Dun, dun, dun. If you do get this, you're a genius. First, the song. But I got something to tell you that I never thought I would. But I believe you really ought to know. Now, does that sound familiar? Because if you love this show, if you've been with us this show, if you have watched the scary classic movies of this show, you have heard that song before. You've heard a cover of it from a movie that came out just the next year. You know what? I'll play this clip and we'll see if you guess it now. Chief Brody, you are uptight. Yes. Come on. That's it. Yes, 
That is right. Oh, this wow. song is in Jaws as Pippet the dog gets attacked and Sheriff sure, Brody's like, something's happening. We have to close the beach. That's Olivia Newton-John. Just setting the mood. Well, it's a cover of the song, but it's the same thing. That is amazing. I love that little connection there. Good way to start it off. And do you think that was an intentional homage? I mean, I not mean, really. You had to pick it. It's, I guess it's kind of like picking... I don't know. The, like if somebody put Old Town Road in a horror movie this year, it's like, well, that was the big one. That'll really designate the time and what people are into. Um, it is It is kind of an interesting song when you get into lyrics. They're very much like, I don't know what to say to you. What could I do if I could fully express myself? And I was imagining saying that it was like Leatherface just wanting to be understood. Now, you will notice that I didn't set up too much of the plot in detail, maybe because it's very simple, but also because Texas Chainsaw Massacre starts with its own dramatic intro. And I want to play this because I have a second pop quiz. Here we go. This is what you see at the very beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These words on the screen. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths. In particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, do you know that voice, people out there? Does anybody out there listening recognize that voice? You know... You might know this person because they actually have a lot of uh, horror credits. You know, this is a somebody who has uh, had altered states, has dealt with cat people, and even had a little bit of a life force connected or sucked out of them. And they have won four Emmys. Here's a clip of them winning the first of them, and this will give away the answer. And the winner is John Larroquette, Nightport, and My, my, my. I've always been fond of short women. Yes, it's John Larroquette, who, on Night Court, which he won that Emmy for, hated hippies, right? Because he was the anti-hippie guy on that show. That was like one of the, I think, <laughs> runners. I think in the 80s, there was always like a Reagan-esque kind of guy, and, and I feel like that was him. Do you know that he said that his payment for this movie was a joint? I mean, that sounds like something a hippie would say. I mean, I guess so. And Night Court is coming back. So maybe we'll get another Emmy on that table for this. Yeah, guy. he's apparently leading the show, which made me think like he has led a show before. Did you ever watch the John Larroquette show? Oh, John Larroquette has been in a million things like John Larroquette and Ted Danson are in more shows that you have forgotten about that have run for like nine seasons. Yeah, like he was in that one where he was like a bus station doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he yeah. also was a... He was also on that show with Rebecca Romaine with like the librarians. You know, he was he's been in a lot. I mean, I have to say, I when I was pulling that Emmy speech, I heard a little snippet of the theme song for the John Larroquette show. If you Mm -hmm. cannot hear this song in your head immediately, I have I have to play this. I absolutely have to play this because I couldn't breathe. Da 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 da
my god amy i that has been locked in my brain you've just opened up a secret passage because yes i remember <laughs> that i mean this is also like in that time where a lot of older white guys were into the blues i mean bruce willis doing under the boardwalk you had you know people whipping out harmonicas all the time this is like this is like a bad version of the fraser song I'm in like it's this, this is actually david cassidy teen heartthrob david oh, cassidy wow. is the mushmouth oh my god well john larroquette show great but i have to say i would love to believe john larroquette but we can just start off this podcast by succinctly and very clearly saying Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not based on real events. That is not true. That is all a lie. And I didn't know that until it was over. And I feel a lot more relieved. And I didn't even know that you could do this. I didn't even know that you could say a movie is based on true events and not have it be true. I am so, I bought into it. I thought you could say like, inspired by true events. And that would be like, oh, that's kind of bullshit. But this is like, no, this happened. <laughs> They do a lot of crazy things in this. They spelled chainsaw wrong. And now you have to spell chainsaw wrong forevermore when you talk about this movie. They write it as two words, chainsaw, uh-huh. on the poster just just to screw with people who want to just sure. have it be spelled correctly. They're, they can do whatever they want, man. Toby Hooper is just like, I got a chainsaw. You want to take it away from me? I'm going to make chainsaw. I'm going to take my chainsaw, cut this word in half, and then lie and say that it's based on a true story. I think what makes this movie so effective is how raw it is. And by leading you in, basically telling you this, this to me felt as raw and as interesting as Easy Rider. Like if Easy Rider was a horror film, or if all of a sudden, you know, Jack Nicholson uh, and Peter Fonda run into like Leatherface, it has the same like kind of weight to it. It has a very indie cool real vibe um and it feels very experimental i think that that really connected me to it and even though it's weird in the beginning of the movie is it it feels very much like a student film like what am i watching what is going to be happening you know you open up on this kind of uh group of hippies you know peeing on the side of the road like it Mm. peeing really bluntly remember how like in psycho it shocked people that you could see a toilet in the mm. back of the bathroom scene. I mean, here it opens with a guy peeing in a can and it cuts to several angles of him peeing in a can right in front of the camera. I mean, this is how fast the post um, the post code world was like, we're going to do whatever the hell we want to now. You know, I, I think what's really interesting about this movie is it feels in many ways, and I I was nervous about jumping into this conversation with this hot take, but I'm going to do it. Um, Very much like a revolt against the status quo, against corporate America, right? The, The heroes in this movie are hippies. And what they are doing is 
they're coming face to face with essentially, and bear with me, people, don't give me the finger just yet if I go too big on this, but they're coming face to face with the, you know, the old school, unemployed, uh, you know, middle America worker who has a disdain for them. And they're both coming from very different points of view. And in a way, it's paralleling or mirroring what we are going through in a society or what we often are going through. Like, you're too liberal. I'm going to take you down. And so the villains in this movie, while yes, they are cannibals and they are just killing recklessly, are also reflective of this scary underbelly of American culture, especially in regards to, you know, people who are part of the hippie movement. I think that that's part of what we see in the beginning of Rambo, the first Rambo movie. Like he comes home, don't don't they beat the shit out of him because he's like a Vietnam vet and they're like, screw you, you know, and and this idea of it's not safe to be young and full of like big progressive ideas. And I know we'll break that down a little bit more, but am I wrong in thinking that like this, the end of this era, this like we were talking about this last week with the cabinet of Dr. Calgary, like world war one is over. And there is this, this movement going on here. Like, who are we? What are we becoming? And I think this movie is doing the exact same thing for people coming home from Vietnam. I see parallels to Charles Manson in here as well. Like who is fucking up the free love, the good times. And why are we, all of a sudden is becoming heavier and we are now the enemies. The hippies are the enemies of the state. Oh, that's fascinating. That's such an interesting parallel. I really like that because there is a connection between like the Vietnam post-war era and just the rise of all the horror films that we would see after that. You know, Tom Savini was like the legendary gore guy. He was a Vietnam vet who came home with just all of these images in his head of the horrors that he had seen. Like, we made all of these young men go go abroad, see things, put images in their head that had never been captured in movies before. They weren't even numb to it. It was, like, brand new. And then they take it home and to process it, he makes movies like this. The kind of He made horror movies in the same way that Oliver Stone made war movies to try to process what they had been through. And I love that you're saying Easy Rider too, because I actually had that same idea. Like this movie feels kind of like the hangover of Easy Rider, a movie that was already kind of like grim and depressing. And like, can this life last? Can this life be sustained? And here, no, like it's, it's murder, but just in a, it's just, it's murder. It's just murder, but now by like a nuclear family of a sort, you know, because you could kind of say that the Texas Chainsaw family they're like an old school patriarchal sit around the dinner table family, which is removed from these hippies. These hippies are just like hanging around in a van and they, yeah, the centerpiece scene is like the loud, angry dad who's scaring everybody at the table, the like screw up hitchhiker. That's like the kind of the fuck up son, Leatherface, who's like wearing an apron and, you know, acting like the mother of the family and then like deferring to like the grand patriarch grandpa to do the killing. I mean, that is as old school of a structure as you can get in a family mashing up against these hippies. You know, that family is literally feasting on hippies. And and I don't think it was taken from them by the hippies, but they are feeling out of place in the world, right? The world has passed this family by. The hippies are feeling like, I'm coming back into a world 
that I don't understand. So there's basically two confused sides. And there's something very sympathetic uh, about the <laughs> the family, the Texas Chainsaw family. Is that what we're going to call them? Uh, what should we call them? I mean, you know, Leatherface and Friends. Uh, you the know, I think it, <laughs> the Leatherfaces. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, what a cute little like engraved wooden door sign. Can you imagine the Leatherfaces <laughs> hanging by the door? Let's make it like the monsters. Like that's what we need to do. We need to make it like <laughs> yeah. put some fun music to it. Yeah, but, but like, no, like to your point. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie, right? It's very yeah. stripped down. But all the dialogue that we there's hear, barely any musical instruments in this movie. Yeah. Like the score is is without. <laughs> Like no musical, no musical instruments except for some copyrighted music, right? It's yeah, like, there's like some sounds and things that kind of teeter, but it's it's not traditional at all. You know, those but sounds like, apparently are what animals would hear in a slaughterhouse. Oof. I mean, poor animals. But yeah, like everything that we get as set up in this movie, I think, really happens in that van at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And they talk about two things. I mean, one, first, yes, they talk about the Zodiac, which is how I think we immediately know they're hippies, right? Mm-hmm. Like they talk about, they go this long thing about Saturn being in retrograde. This heat is just driving me crazy. I don't Listen, know if I can take much more. The condition of, of retrogradation is contrary or inharmonious to the regular direction of actual movement in the Zodiac and is in that respect evil. Hence, when malefic planets are in retrograde and Saturn's malefic, okay, their malefice is increased. Have you been doing those Reader's Digest Word Power columns? Jerry, it just means Saturn's a bad influence. It's just particularly a bad influence now because it's in retrograde. And that sets such a mood. You're like, oh, they feel like something bad is going on. For the next 10 minutes, they just keep kind of opening up that book, reading little bits of horoscope. It's always bad. And it's sort of repetitive, but it is just kind of adding to that spell of feeling like you're in a road trip with these people who are like repeating kind of the same thing, but it's pretty casual. You feel a little bit hot. You feel a little bit bored. You feel a little bit creeped out. You feel nervous. It really it does also feels, set that tone. Everything feels, it feels ominous. It feels unwritten and almost documentary like because of that aimlessness in the beginning yeah there's like a proto almost like slacker link later vibe to it right yeah and there's an element here which is really interesting too because they're picking up a hitchhiker right and then the hitchhiker outweirds them like so everyone's kind of always a little bit out of the pocket as a matter of fact by the way i thought this is actually really funny that the uh nubbins who is the hitchhiker uh texas troopers actually thanked him for causing uh, the crime rate in Texas to drop because the message that most people walked away with from this movie was don't pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> um, and, and I get that. Like, I get that idea. Like they're, they're opening their door and this guy looks a little bit like them, feels a little bit like them, but you quickly see is not like them. Yeah. Um, and you're exactly right. Like what he's talking about when he shows up, is how the meat industry has changed for his family, how they feel a little bit undervalued. You know, that before his day, they used to kill, you know, they used to kill cows with like a quick blow to the sledgehammer. Right. You know, you learn later that like his grandpa, he considers to be the absolute master of this, like the maestro, the John Williams of killing cows with one sledgehammer. But now that there's these new air guns, it's they're questioning their place in society. And he goes on this little rant about it right here. Hey, man, did you go in that slaughter room or whatever they call it? The place where they shoot the cattle in the head with that big air gun thing. Oh, that, that 
That gun's no good. I was in there once with my uncle. No way. With a sledge. <laughs> See, that was better. They died better that way. Well, how come? I, I thought the gun was better. Oh, no, no. With the new way people put on jobs. You do that? Look. And so, yeah, it's like these are the two pieces of information we're getting, right? Like this family is feeling displaced and these hippies are nervous that something is going to go on. And Ed Neal, the guy who's playing the hitchhiker, I mean, he said that when he auditioned for the character, um, he has a nephew who actually, you know, had to deal with being a paranoid schizophrenic. So he was like capturing a little bit of the vibe of his nephew in that performance. Mm. But he got so into it. That when this film finally hit theaters, he would go to theaters in Austin and he would like sneak into screenings and tap people on the shoulder when oh, and so they'd spin around and freak the hell out. And they, the theaters had to actually ask him not to come back. <laughs> well, you know what? This, this guy is actually very interesting, too, because um, he did talk about filming that scene. And he said, filming that scene was the worst time of my life. And I had been to Vietnam with people trying to kill me. So I guess that shows how bad it was. Um, and that's interesting, too, because we're going to get into like how the production of this movie was really kind of screwed up. But you feel throughout this whole movie this very uncomfortable vibe. And I don't know if it's because they shoot this during uh, a very hot summer on a very limited budget but every the movie feels hot. The movie feels uncomfortable to see people in it. And also all the scenes feel a little bit claustrophobic like that. Like I actually felt a little like wave of relief when it turned to night. I was like, oh, okay, that's a little like it just it changed the energy in the movie a little bit. It just it, like I actually felt like I cooled off. And I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say in watching a movie, but there was something really oppressive about this during the daylight. You felt everything here and you felt that awkwardness. And that scene, I think, plays that way for a myriad of reasons. I think bad production, uh, it isn't written super tight, but you get to kind of see maybe a more naturally crazy person because he's not, he is, I mean, he's extreme, but I don't know. What do you think about that? You know, that quote that you read about him being a vet, as you were saying that, I was realizing that I wonder if I finally can access like a deeper level of empathy for the early 70s, having lived through what we've lived through, mm -hmm. a time where you can kind of look around and throw a Nerf ball at somebody and know that they went through a pretty fucked up year. Yeah. Like, I have never experienced that to this extent, I think. Right? And yeah. so now I'm really imagining being like a young kid, being like Ed Neal's age in the 70s and throwing a Nerf ball. And like basically everybody you hit was really fucked up by the war. And I think I've I've known that intellectually, but it's never really hit me how unstable that must have felt. You know? Yeah. I, it's like, I, yeah, it's a thing I feel like I've been told in movie after movie after movie after movie. But weirdly now thinking about this movie in that same context and of like the kind of Caligari shakeup that we needed that we had to express somehow. Uh, yeah, I guess that's what I love about movies, is they just keep bringing you closer and closer to empathy for how it must have felt like to live through the past. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. At this point in the 70s, I think there was a couple things going on. I think there was a lot of violence. And I think the Manson family, not technically a family, but a, a family that also does violence. It starts to shake up what we know of America. And maybe it's a disillusionment of America from people that grew up in the 60s and they're finally seeing like their life while maybe not idyllic it like the the seams are starting to break right like the the lines are starting to get blurred a little bit here and i think that that is also what we're realizing is like it's not safe anymore next door it's not safe over here i, I and i know that that's not a new concept but maybe it's a new concept for people who are coming of age at this time yeah, maybe each generation has to relearn it. I mean, now yeah. it suddenly feels really symbolic that in Taxi Driver, you know, another movie about a, a veteran, maybe, or a guy who says he's a veteran, at least, like, thinking that the world is falling apart. As he's driving around the city in New York, one thing I remember you do see is he drives by a marquee of a theater that is showing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. So it's like that movie is kind of nodding to this one, being like, I see you. I recognize you. I'm also probably using you as a sign that the world is going to hell because this movie is so violent. Why would anybody want to watch this? And I think it's a constant thing that we see in horror. Like what's behind that door? What is going on in that place? It's the thought that we always have when you drive down a block or you see a weird hotel that is open, but who goes there? Or even, you know, a mini mall as you drive by, like you have these thoughts, like who is there? And and this basically says, don't try to find out because you're not welcome there. Even Psycho has elements of this movie too. Like somebody feeling like they have lost out. The highway's coming through, but they're not going to come through here. That's right. Now, the base motel's like losing business because of the new highway. It's the same kind of change. Yeah. So I think that there's this idea always of a little bit of a voyeuristic tendency that we all have of what's going on behind that door and this is telling us, don't go there. Now, I grew up in the 80s where I was always told not to go behind the door. Don't take candy from strangers. You know, we're watching. I, I felt like all I heard about were kids being kidnapped when I was young and, you know, and and candy having razor blades in them. And, you know, there was an episode of Different Strokes where uh, Sam is kidnapped and forced to call somebody else mommy and daddy. Like those were the things that were so prevalent, even the, you know, the idea of, you know, say no to drugs and there was danger at every corner. And I think that's what I'm kind of wrestling with. That's what I grew up with. I knew there was danger behind every corner. So I was always hesitant. And I feel like these people seem to be a lot more uh, oblivious to that, but not oblivious. Like, oh, we're high and we're drunk and we want to fuck around. It's more like, yeah, they're no, not no, dumb. no, it's like yeah. every door is open. We're like, they're like, they are. I think they're coming in with an attitude that's not meshing with the rest of where America's going. You know, that's fascinating because I think, and I'm not a thousand percent sure about this, but I feel like when I, I once talked to a um, 
to kind of like a serial killer expert and profiler when I was doing my Halloween podcast. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that's another movie from the 70s. It talks about some kind of these tangential things. And it seemed to me that like the high point of serial killer-ness in America was like the 60s, 70s. You know, it was like kind of people who grew up really screwed up by their parents. Like their dad had suffered through World War II, came home really fucked up in the head about it, wasn't very loving. And then they had to go through Vietnam and it just broke like a generations of men. And then now as it has progressed, it's like we became more aware of serial killers. We didn't even have that word, I think, until the late 60s or 70s. I think it came out in the 70s. We didn't have that word. And then the 80s, we got paranoid as the numbers of serial killers were dropping. And now I feel like they seem to be at a historic low uh, from anything I've heard, but we're more nervous about it than ever. And it seems like it works in inverse. I don't know why that is, but it's like the more scared we are of like child abductions and serial killings and people not being able to play in the street, the kind of the safer it's gotten, even though there's yeah. more anxiety in the air. Are you saying in a way like sometimes the myth is bigger than the actuality? Like the idea that like we want to live in that world, but it's not actually happening. Like I see all these podcasts about true crime, all these documentaries about true crime. Everyone's living in the husband put the wife in the barn. No one saw it, but the children, you know, it's like, and then they were abducted from their home. And we live in this world. If you saw the media that we're consuming, at least on the podcast front, uh, and I can just say from uh, my wife's front, you would think that we are living in yeah. a zone where people are being murdered all the time. Yeah, I mean, the, it the is Fox not reflective. News of it all. They're at your yeah. door. No, you're right. I, I think the more that we become aware and alarmed, the act, the actuality has gone down. And I don't know mm -hmm. what the cause and effect is. There's a bunch of different theories about it. But I do think it's interesting that we're more fearful at, at the time when it's least likely to happen. Like there was, okay, so people say that for this plot, Toby Hooper was inspired a little bit by the case of Ed Gein, you know, the, also the guy yes. who was the, the inspiration in Psycho, the guy who murdered a lot of people, turned them into lampshades. But there's a second killing that I think he was actually more influenced by that hit the newspapers right when they started filming this movie. Um, in the summer of 1973 in Texas. And it is a crazy case that I had not heard of. So do you want to hear a little bit about it? Yeah. Okay. So it is called the Candyman Murders. And it is um, with a serial killer from Texas named Dean Coral. And now his thing was that when he was a little kid, he was literally a Candyman. Like his mom started this company called Pecan Prince when he was little. So he spent his whole life coming home straight after school, making these pecan candies, wrapping them, helping her distribute them, never really having a life of his own, but being the pecan prince. Um, went to war, uh, no, well, went to the army, but got discharged, came home a little screwed up. And then he started becoming a serial killer when he was 30 years old, uh, that we know of. He might've started before, but it's a little bit unclear. So what he would do is he had two teen accomplices. And this is taking place right outside Houston. He had two teenagers working for him. They were like, they started, one of them started at like 13, 14. I think the oldest was like 18, 19 when it ended. They would go out and they would lure their friends back to his house and he would pay them $200 for each kid that they brought back. Always boys, always teenagers. Whoa. And then he would rape and murder them and bury their bodies at a beach. He killed 28 kids in three years. 28 kids in wow. three years. This is from like 1970 to 73. And like the cops never did anything about it. They like did not care. Like what do you they, mean? They didn't. What do you mean? They never they didn't got care? into it. They told all the parents that their kids had run away, that the kid wasn't coming back. Some families lost like a son 
And then a year later, he took their other son. Like he just killed 28 people and nobody did anything about it. And the only way that it stopped is because finally one of the boys um, had like this friend who I kind of want to get into actually massively because she's amazing. Um, Maybe I'll do this. I will tell you the story of how the Candyman murder ended because of like, I think the final girl, you know, like the real life, actual final girl. Um, so, okay. Here's the story of a girl named Rhonda Williams. This is a massive detour. I got so into this. I'm so sorry. No, go for it. So Rhonda Williams is a girl from Texas who's really fascinating. Like when she was 18 months old, her mom died and her dad like blamed her for it and hated her forevermore. And so she spent most of her life with her dad kicking her out of the house, being put in foster homes, getting abused a lot. Like her dad once gave her to this house where they padlocked her in at night. And so what she did is she saved her allowance and she bought an identical padlock that she like swapped in so that she could escape. Like she's this just really tough, smart girl. Um, She finally got out. She went back to her dad for a little bit. She fell in love for the first time when she was 13 years old. And Dean, the Candyman, killed her first boyfriend. And she had no idea he was dead. She like waited outside for his work until like dawn into his house. People said he must have just like found a new girlfriend and left town. So she became so lonely that she became really good friends with one of the Candyman's murder teenagers who like lived around her block. And he became like her older brother, basically. And he would protect her from her dad, who was always beating her up. Um, So one day, one of these murder teenagers had just lured a kid to Dean's house to get murdered. He got him really stoned and he was in his car and he was about to drive him over when he hears screaming from Rhonda Williams's house. So he runs over there and he's like, are you okay? And he takes her away from her dad. And he's like, well, she has nowhere else to go. So he takes Rhonda with him to the murder house, right? And when he shows up with Rhonda at the murder house, the Candyman is like furious that he brought a girl over. He's like, how dare you bring a girl into the murder house? And so he, um, he ties both of the teenagers up. He ties Rhonda up and he ties the other boy up. And he tells his murder teenager, you have to kill this one. Like, I don't want to even bother with it because it's a girl. And so he has this gun out and he's like very close to killing his friend. And Rhonda just looks at him and she's like, why are you letting him do this? And he turns around and he shoots the Candyman and he murders the Candyman guy. And then he calls the cops. and He's like, I don't know. I've helped kill 28 people. This is crazy. And then Rhonda... Uh, the cops show up and because there's a dead guy there, they arrest her and like the other kidnapped teenager and this murder teenager for murder. And she is held in jail for murder for like days because they don't even believe that this guy murdered a bunch of people. Finally, they like go and bother to dig up some of the bodies and they're like, okay. And they let her go at it. They let, they release her from jail. But when she goes home, her dad is like, you have disgraced the family by being abducted and kidnapped. And so you can never come back home again. So she goes back to jail and says, can I just wait here? I don't have anywhere to live. Like, she's outstanding um, and so brave and lived through so much. So that is just the story of a girl who actually, like, ended a 28 body count murder ring that was happening literally in Texas. So this is all hitting the newspapers. Like, the story of Rhonda's hitting the newspaper, like, week one or two of filming Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's not that far away. So... Yeah, so but that that is the kind of serial killing that was happening in the 70s. Like that was just happening. That was just happening. And by the way, the the second murder teenager, they were both in jail forever. Um one of them is still there, the guy who actually decided not to kill Rhonda and changed everything and the other guy yeah. died of COVID in May. 
Yikes. <gasps> That's oh my a lot. God. I really wanted to tell that story because no, I've lo- never I mean, heard of it. I mean, I I was going off the funny story that Toby Hooper was in a, a hardware store at Christmas and he was like, oh, how would I get through all these people? And he saw a chainsaw and he's like, wait a second. That's a great idea for a movie. I I did not. Oh, that really, <laughs> yeah, that creeped me that's out. That's also true. I guess we all have killer impulses, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh my God. Can you imagine a Black Friday massacre at a Walmart? You know, uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. Wait, that's too. But real. by the way, oh, that's, that's a good real. movie. Sell it to Ugh. Blumhouse right now. Amy, Ugh. go. Too Patton. real, too depressing. I will say too. I know we've been calling them the Leatherface family, but it is the Sawyer family. Um, and the Sawyer is a person who uses a chainsaw. And uh, oh. some people have said, like, I'm that, a Sawyer cow. Sure. Right. I mean, some people say that it, it, that there's a resemblance to Sawney. Uh, which is a cannibal clan led by Sonny Bean in medieval Scotland. So maybe there's a, a couple of things going on there. I'm not um, convinced that Toby Hooper thought that much about it. Well, you know, I think that we talked about these choices that he was making, and you just talked about this very dark thing. And throughout the whole movie, you're hearing the radio basically be interrupted, the music being interrupted on the radio by yeah. these reports of terrible things going on and that's and that that is the air in which we breathe like we all breathe that air of the world is falling apart and and going back to this idea of the sawyer family not being that bad because i want to explore that too really okay (laughs) i do i do because i think there is something sweet about this family in the sense that <laughs> that they are family, that they care about each other. There are some, look, it's not great. It's not great. They are, you know, they are doing some terrible, awful, disgusting things. But I think that there is something about them that is sympathetic. I mean, maybe it's because, especially in this film, Leatherface is not like a crazy killer. He he seems to be like a scared child who is having some sort of uh, developmental disability because you see that first hit, you know, that first hit, which is so kind of brutal where he, you know, the door opens and bam. Um, it's so sudden. It's I it's love how so there's sudden. not even like the creep creep. It's just like kaboom. This movie has suddenly changed. You knew something and, was going to happen, but you didn't know what. And when they and, you know, obviously we know Leatherface. It's it's an iconic character. I know Leatherface without seeing the film, but to see that image for the first time and the way he is far away, like what is going on? My God, that would be so scary. Yeah. But that and first the details bo- of it, the way that, that, that um, the guy that he hits, the actor who I think is William Vale, the way his like legs get all twitchy. There's yeah. something about twitchy legs when somebody has been hit. And when an actor adds that to an injury, it feels so real that it freaks me out. Uh, it really is a, an aggressive hit, but that hit is immediately followed by like, a run to look out the window. Like, oh, who saw, is anyone else here? Like you feel, or at least I felt, put myself in the Sawyer family shoes, that someone was attacking them. They were standing their ground. They were like, they were in their house, minding their own business. Someone literally enters into their home and they attack. Now what they're doing there, it seems like they're pretty much existing in the graveyard for the most part, right? They're not, they're not, Having, yeah, yes, they're cannibals, they're doing all this stuff, but it seems for the most part, 
they're letting live people be. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Because, you know, um, Jim Sido, who plays the guy who runs the gas station, he's mm-hmm. very much like, don't go over there. Yeah. No, don't go over there. It's like they don't want to be discovered doing yeah. what they're doing. If you right. just let if me kill my embarrassed people in peace, I don't need to go out and do this. I mean, if you I, imagine I mean, I gotta tell you, like, yeah. Oh, I, I got to tell you this thing that I thought of. I mean, it's such a crazy, I'm really going down rabbit holes and sorry to cut you off. There is a episode of Good Times, uh, the old like sitcom with Jimmy J.J. Walker and uh, and and so many uh, great people, Esther Roll and, and John Amos, um, about these people who live in the inner city. They're in like the projects in the inner city, right? And there's an episode where they are invited downstairs to this woman's house. And they don't want to go to dinner at this woman's house because they know that she eats cat food. I may have talked about this on this episode, uh, on an episode like this before. And they, and they're like, oh, we don't want to go. And they go there and they're, they're eating food and they're all freaked out. Oh my God, she eats cat food. She eats cat food. And then she's like, what's going on? Like, why are you all freaked out right now? And, and she's like, and they're like, you eat cat food. She's like, yeah, I do eat cat food because that's what I can afford, but I wouldn't serve you cat food because I understand how to interact in the world. And that like, is there's like middle ground. And there's something about this. There was something about this in there that I saw, or I at least responded to like, they are cannibals, but it also seems like they've been a little bit forced into cannibals. Now, when you bring in the old grandfather and he's drinking blood, that, that may, I, my, my premise may fall apart. But it seems to me that they're doing it because they can't afford to do anything else. Like they're out of a job. They don't know what to do. So they're robbing graveyards. And then their young fuck up son screws up the whole operation and kind of uncovers them. I mean, I was imagining this from Leatherface's point of view where, okay, so you have the first kill, which is um, Kirk, who, like, knocks on the door, just sort of kabam, like, hit on the head with a sledgehammer, dragged away, goodbye. And then you have the second victim, which is Pam with the short shorts, who, like, said after the fact that she was really didn't realize they were going to be filming her ass that much. She was like, uh, all right. right. Um, but, like, she's looking for him, and she has that moment where she kind of gets to see the house, see the bones, see the feathers, mm-hmm. see that really kind of almost artistic, gigantic, multi-human skeleton sofa. Yeah. Whatever that thing is that is just so beautiful. Uh, beautiful. I guess I said it, do- it does look like art. It looks like real art. I don't want one, but it does look like art. And then she has that awful moment where she like makes it out the front door and then gets pulled back in. Like she's so close and then she's put on the meat hook. But then there's the third kill, the guy who discovers her in the freezer. Um, and then right after that, there is that scene where Leatherface really freaks out. And he's like, well, here, he sounds like this. And he's like running around. He's wearing an apron. He's checking the window. And I was like, oh, this reminds me kind of like, I don't know, like, 
He's overwhelmed that people keep stopping by. I was like, it kind of makes me think of like, what if gigantic Anxiety, cookies yeah. kept coming? What if cookies kept coming to my house and I didn't really mean to have them all? Like, and I want to eat them, but also it's terrible for me. Or it made me think a little bit like that episode of I Love Lucy. You know, the one where Lucy works the confection stand and she's got that like conveyor belt of chocolates coming down and she yeah. just keeps like fucking up and dropping them and shoving them in her mouth. Like that's who Leatherface is at that moment. He is the I Love Lucy of like, human pizza that just keeps arriving and he's like well fuck where do i store this one what do i do with this one like how bizarre is that from his point of view he's living in kind of an isolated place and all of these teenagers keep running in asking basically for him to kill them because he can't let them know they all walk in they all walk in the only thing that he knows how to do is to work in a slaughterhouse right and so i think he is treating these people it doesn't seem premeditated. It does. It seems to be simply about survival. And I feel like that is what I'm responding to in that family. And I'm seeing the side of it being, which is, you know, when you, when you get into these bigger political discussions, we're going to get rid of the coal mines and we're going to invest in clean energy. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, why, why? What about the coal miners? What about the coal miners? And I think that there's an energy here in this movie that is, is, paralleling that yeah although i do have to say we talk so much about coal miners and journalists like four journalists have been lost their job in the last decade for every coal miner who's lost a job man oh of we course. don't get to go on rampages i <sighs> know but I, but i think nobody that, yes, talks I, about us losing our jobs but i do think that there is something like they're just trying to survive i yeah. guess is what i'm saying is like that family is trying to survive and i think it's it's through the the metaphor of horror. The old man needs blood to survive, the blood of youth to survive, right? Uh, like, and and it's not coming to them anymore. No one's coming to them anymore. So they they the youth, the blood of their youth, is their job. Their this house looks beautiful, but now they, it's in disrepair. They're you know everything has fallen around them, so they need to inject like a lifeblood. And then yeah. technically, it is a real true. Blood wait, wait. Of, a, of a life person. Do you think John Larroquette will mind if I grab his joint right now? Because, like, <laughs> I'm going to say something. All right, go for it's it. It's like scarcity of resources in capitalism, man. Yes. You know, like, they don't have income. And, like, what's happening in here is, like, the young people need gas. This is all happening because they need gas, this fossil fuel that they, like, required to be, like, using to drive around. And this is Texas. This is oil country. All of this happens because they need gas. They, they pull over the first mm-hmm. time because they need gas. They keep walking to the murder house because they need gas. And, like, you know what's even luring them to the murder house? It's the fact that you keep hearing a generator. I pulled a clip of the wacky music that's happening when Alan Danziger, he's like Jerry, the right. guy who gets killed, is walking to the house as the sun is setting. But what you hear at the end of it is that generator that's kind of working like a siren song in an old Greek myth. Like, this generator, this sound of gasoline and fuel is the thing that brings them to the house. They would not be there without gasoline. So it's like all of these things that we need, money, food, which is the slaughterhouse, which is meat, which, you know, there's nothing that that Leatherface does to a human that he doesn't do to a cow. You know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that happens to a human in this movie that hasn't happened to a cow that I probably ate this month. And like the movie talks about that. It's acknowledged. 
you know, there is there's kind of a way of looking at this movie as a green movie. It, like this movie is basically like if they well, had a Prius and they were eating tofu, none of this would have happened. Well, I think, but this is why you have people like Guillermo del Toro, who says, I became a vegetarian after seeing this movie, right? There is, there is <laughs> have something. Have you seen the TMZ clip where they interview him about that? No. Oh, here it is. We got the award-winning director, Guillermo del Toro, in New York City. We asked him uh, if the rumors were true that he became a vegetarian after seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. So what movie made you eat meat again? Uh, no, I was just passing by a, by a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> that was it. That, that. Yeah, I like that TMVZ is really going after the hard-hitting movie gossip. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, like sometimes they have to get it. They got to get whatever they can get. Yeah, um, I will say I think TMZ is terrible. And the only thing I really like about it is when it's mocked in pop star, never stop, never stopping. But the whole TMZ clip of them talking to Del Toro is then like all the TMZ guys wondering who would eat who next and who would eat whose dog if they had to to survive. Oh. And that's actually kind of fun watching those people have that conversation. <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over, from book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. You know, this movie is probably saying a lot that people are just not getting, and that's okay. And I think, you know, just like sci-fi, horror can hide social commentary and maybe some of this was unintentional and some of it was uh a half idea that you know when you're living in it and you're making it it's coming out and what you're feeling is coming out and so i think the problem with this movie in a way is you look at it and you go crazy family cannibals but i also see the beauty of that final shot of leatherface like just screaming you know, at the sky with his chainsaw. Yeah. It, it, to me, and it's her not... scream, like, turning into laughter like that. Yeah. And I don't see that last moment as being scary. I see that last moment as, like, you know, raging against a world that has left them behind. And that woman has left them behind. That woman has escaped. The lifeblood has left them behind. And now they are yet, they are again alone. That's true. It's and, not well, I really like, hope that truck driver in the black Maria truck gets away too, who throws the I wrench. Mean, yeah, we don't know what yeah. happens to him. I hope that guy's okay. But, <laughs> but, but I, yeah, okay. But, but well, there right. is something really beautiful about that last shot. Well, then let me ask you this. Like if our question last week was that we want to keep exploring the idea of a horror movie asking, why does evil happen? Like, what do you think the answer is here? I think the answer here is more complicated. Right. Um, arguably, the most violent member of this family is Leatherface. Right. I would imagine now. Body count wise. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or like he's the one with the weapon and everything like that. You know, the grandfather is 
weird and old, but basically, you know, whatever. By the way, that makeup took such a long time for the actor to get into that he refused to ever put it on again, which meant that everything that you see in that movie with that actor, he did that all in one sitting. Uh, which created a crazy 36-hour day. I know right now we're talking about the IATSE strike, which is about giving crews better time to rest and hours and all this sort of stuff. But this scene, I think, almost mentally broke the actress in it, too, because that whole sequence where she's at the end of the table, they're laughing at her, that that was all shot in the middle of a heat wave in Texas over 36 hours, where it feels like everyone is just completely at their wit's end. And I think it makes that scene actually work. I'm not advocating for 36 hour days in any way at all, but there is something about that, that, that end is like, it really yeah. is one of the most disturbing things ever. It feels that, really just broken and vile. I mean, it's a, it's wild. And like the actor playing grandpa is 18 years old. He's 18 years old. I love just that. They're like, oh, we need wow. a grandpa. Here's an 18 year old. We'll put makeup on him. But yeah, like, By the way, I'm also like, how did an 18-year-old be like, I'm not going to do that again? I thought it was an older man who was like, I'm not going to get in this makeup yeah. again. Like, you know, that, that seems like an Ed Harris thing. Like, I'll put the makeup <laughs> on once. That's Bruce Willis. Yeah. yeah, but but like the way they describe that last bit of the shoot, it's almost like a 4D movie, the way they describe it. Because what they really keep hitting is is not just the exhaustion, but like the smell. You mm-hmm. know, they're in this room. There's all of this real meat on the table, like real meat, Ugh. real like awful. There's actual like real blood all over the walls and real bones all over the house. It's a hundred degrees and they're pretending it's a night scene. So they've got blackout curtains on all of the walls and it is just baking. There's like tons of people in the house. There's one bathroom, by the way, for the 40 people who made this movie and they're awake all night in Leatherface, the poor actor playing Leatherface, whose name is Gunnar Hansen, who was like a poet. Like he was a poet up until he did this. But he was like, well, I'm six foot four. Uh, so I guess I may as well do this job. And like he took it really seriously. You know, he went to the Austin State Hospital to study like the behavior of the patients there. He came up with this idea of what his character would be like. And then on set, they're like, you just we just want you to squeal, actually. We don't want you to talk. And he's like, oh, really, bo- really bummed about that. But like they wouldn't let him wash his leather face outfit for the whole shoot because they they were like, well, we have no laundry place we can trust that would keep the blood as it is. We only have one of these. We don't have like nine leather face aprons the way you would if you made that movie today in like different stages of blood. They just had the one that they were using to shoot pretty much chronologically. So they wouldn't let him bathe for like, I think, seven weeks. They wouldn't let him wash his uniform. Can you imagine how bad that yes. smelled toward the well, end of this shoot? And he's like, nobody would even sit near me at breaks because I smelled so bad. And you he, know that was, and it uh, put him in this headspace of actually feeling like gross and hating people and having kind of like a feeling so shunned by the cast because he smelled so bad made him start to have like an angry meltdown. I mean, and people on the set, like the big debate was, does Toby Hooper just not know what he's doing? Does he have no clue how to do this? Or is he trying to break us down on person, like on purpose? And nobody seems to be clear enough to say one way or the other. But either way, it was so disorganized and hot on purpose or torturously that it just, that it's almost feels like we're watching a half documentary. You know, like people are actually getting hurt. Like the guy, when they're dropping the hammer on her head, they're dropping the hammer on her head. Like she's getting hit in the head. She's getting bruised. When she's getting hit with a stick, 
she's getting hit with a stick because Toby Hooper's like, it doesn't look real enough. Hit her more with a stick. I mean, I mean, my God, God. it it crosses a line that we wouldn't cross today. There's probably some truth to the fact that, you know, when you're making a movie on this kind of a a budget, right, which was it was produced for less than one hundred and forty thousand dollars. And that in 2021 money is about seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. That's not a lot of money for what they're doing. Right. Um, And there are some things that I think. Look weird. Right there, it, there are weird effects, but how do those effects play in person versus how do they p- play on screen? And very different. I mean, we talked about the idea of this movie doing a lot of horror, but in a way where it, without a lot of blood. Yeah, um, like they didn't you know, have it, the money to make the meat hook go all the way through the girl, so they didn't. And it makes it, I think, they argued to him that it would be worse if you just imagined it. That if you did it with the effects and the fake blood, it would look so cheap that it would actually be less effective. And one of the the effects that the director does in the film is he cuts small frames off of a shot preceding something violent. So it's like a small beat can catch the viewer off guard as their eyes become accustomed to a certain shot. And so when the cinematographer, you know, they just would kind of do these misdirects. Um, so you would all of a sudden characters would appear out of nowhere and you would all of a sudden get this fear. And if you told me that this is like one of the least bloody horror films ever made, I, I wouldn't believe you, but it is. It it truly, truly is. Yeah. And except some of the blood you see is like real. real. You know that scene when yes. they when when they cut um when they cut Sally's finger so that grandpa can sit mm-hmm. on it. They like apparently were trying to do it with fake blood, but they couldn't get the fake blood thing to pump out the blood. So Toby was just like Cut her for real and like whispered well, that. Well, because he was like, he was like, I want to get this scene done with. They've been shooting for 36 yeah. hours. So they so, really I mean, cut yeah. her and they didn't ask. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and by the way, this, going back to the bloody of it all too, <laughs> this is the craziest part about this movie, is that Toby <laughs> Hooper wanted to make a PG movie. So <laughs> he like, he wanted to keep the violence moderate. He wanted to keep the language mild. And since a lot of the horror was implied off screen, he's like, oh, this is a PG movie and was shocked that it came back as an X. And then continually like, no, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not a PG movie. I just, so I can imagine that the guy who thinks he's making a PG movie, uh, you would probably think, like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Cause there are certain elements here. It's like, how could this ever be a PG movie? Like you couldn't just be like, let me take my kids to see Stroker Ace with Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're about equal. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, um, and I think it's, you know, it, it just also just shows how effective. And I think tonally, like you don't have to do that much to make you squirm. And I think like I, the POV of being in the that woman's POV at the end as they're all laughing and staring at her is Ugh. one of the most unnerving things. And you feel that POV a lot in this movie, whether it's yeah, looking at the hippie in the beginning. Lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Even just the 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 masks on Leatherface and not knowing exactly what he looks like. And, you know, there's so much going on. And I think that, you know, you said that, you know, Gunner doesn't have a chance to have any lines. But I think these choices that they made, the way that he communicated, the way he walked. And I do believe this, like, beautiful ending. Yes, he doesn't speak, but there's a lot of acting going on 
behind that mask that feels so much more alive than other masked characters like Jason or Michael Myers. You know, um, there's a lot you I feel like the same way we don't see the blood in the horror, we don't see his face, but we can understand what that face looks like. I don't even want to gun I don't even want to Google him. I don't want to know what he looks like. Oh, he looks he looks very dignified. He kind of looks like George Lucas. Or he did right. before he okay. died. But he he gave this kind of sad quote before he died. He was like, you know, I'm happy that I did this movie, but they will probably put Gunnar Hansen. He was Leatherface on my gravestone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, I'm a poet, man. Like, th- this is not my, this is not supposed to be my whole life, even though he did after this make things like, I don't know, I think Chainsaw Hookers was maybe one oh, of boy. them. Um, well, you got to get that yeah. cash. He died in 2015. And I did try to look up his grave on findagrave.com mm-hmm. and it is unknown. So he must be hiding that's nice. so nobody puts yeah. that on his gravestone well i'll say also like that sensitivity and not to say that all, all poets are sensitive but that sensitivity i think goes back to what you were saying about him going to mental hospitals understanding like how do i do this role without being stereotypical without being offensive trying to figure out more about this character you know i think you know there was only one person that you know, that that kind of energy, I think, was important for this to not yeah. make him a killing machine. Anyway, it's it's You're such right. an interesting like, movie. That's what I find kind of a letdown of like the especially Jason. Like, I'm just not a Jason person. Mm-hmm. I Jason, especially in the sequels, is just a killing machine. Giving Leatherface those emotional scenes, getting to see him get bossed around by his dad, who's mad that he chainsawed the door. You know, you have empathy for him that the film didn't have to add. And it's a little bit screwed up that it adds it in a way. You're like, do I really need to empathize with a guy who's just like hung people on meat hooks? But it adds this dimension to the film that makes you think about it longer, that makes you think about him longer. You know, the history of slasher movies is a lot of dumb killers that you don't remember, but he stands out. He's one of, I would say, the top four, if you're like just going to put a mask on screen. Right. Right? Like him, Jason, Freddy... And and Michael Myers, right? There, yeah, who else? there's and maybe nobody Chucky. That, yeah, maybe Chucky. Yeah, um, but he is the first of all of those. You know, and you can only think that they're like chasing his lead a little bit. I mean, you see how much money this movie makes, and it does inspire John Carpenter to make a horror movie like Halloween. It does inspire even Ridley Scott. He saw this movie and he was like, "Whoa, okay, okay, I want to. I can create crazy worlds of my own with this kind of like gore feeling." And Toby Hooper himself gets like a hand from the generation before. Like when William Friedkin sees this film, he's like, this guy's really talented. And he helps get Toby. Some people say a three picture deal. Some people say a five picture deal with Universal. Everybody says it ultimately didn't work out. But Friedkin kind of scouted him and was like, I see something in you. So I love these horror guys all kind of passing batons over the next decade to each other. Yeah. Well, I think it it's a new era of the popcorn artist, right? What we're talking about here are there's the auteur cinema that we've gone through and the AFI list. And here it's these bigger popcorn-esque films that also have some real weight to them. And I think it's something that we always are looking forward to now. It's like, I think that's why, that's why Get Out was, I think, such a big giant hit. Like we get excited when you can be entertained, but not preached at, and you're getting what you want from a, a film. You're laughing at it, but you're learning from it. Like there's, there are certain things like we, we want that director. We want that writer. We want that project that actually engages us in two ways. And where I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
stands apart from everybody else in that mm-hmm. is there is something about its purity, I guess mm-hmm. I want to say, because, I mean, think about the title. Like, yes, they chewed on other titles for a while. They thought about calling it, you know, Saturn in Retrograde. They thought about calling it Leatherface. They thought about calling it Head Cheese. Mm-hmm. Then they decided on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that is a title that just removes all suspense of what's going to happen. Like all sorts of shock in a way from the audience. It's like it is saying to the audience, like, you are here for this. Like if you buy a ticket to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know what you're doing. And it is a movie that, you know, we can chew on the subtext of it. But in the movie itself, there is no why. You know, people show up. Nobody has any chance to even really talk to the family except for Sally at the end. And they mostly just laugh at her. You know, nobody gives a big speech. You know, there is no... There is no giant overarching solution in this film, which is always a thing that I kind of really like. It's just like there's outsiders and there's this family and there is tension and it is just there. Kaboom. It's a little bit Night of the Living Dead, honestly, if it's like that. You know, it's like a one night survival story. Actually, yeah, because Night of the Living Dead also has a lot of those touchstones at the beginning. The bad news on the radio and the TV, driving through a graveyard where stuff's about to go down. I mean- Definitely Toby Hooper looked at, at Night of Living Dead and thought, I can do that. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot of similarities to that. And you see, you know, we talk about Night of Living Dead being so important. We talked about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari being important. I would argue this, which is ranked right up next to The Exorcist as one of the best horror films ever made, yeah. also deserves this kind of a slot because it brings a realness that I believe Night of Living Dead definitely had. But this brings an aesthetic choice to it. It it has some elements to it that I I truly think affect a lot of the modern day horror that we see now, which is, I think, the brutality without the reasoning. And it allows for anything from, you know, the hills have eyes to jeepers, creepers, to horror movies where a a truck driver comes out of nowhere and takes your wife as Kurt Russell movie is very good called breakdown. This is a genre that is different than the three that we've just talked about, but at the same time uh, as influential. I mean, this movie is raw and what is striking is that it has not aged. I don't think this movie has aged anything from 1974. Like I think it is as raw and terrifying as it was then, which right. In a part, kudos to the special effects like that that they don't use. You know, kudos right. to the ability to like use your imagination like you were talking about. Like this movie feels like you have been shoved in a freezer yourself, like thrown into an ice bath. And it's remarkable to me. It kind of feels like a marvel that it ever existed. You know, like we've had films before this point that were a lot gorier. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like at all the first gore film, not even close to it. I mean... Herschel Gordon Lewis was doing like horrible things with like actual entrails, you know, a whole decade before. Right. But it is, I think, one of the most just pure horror films. That is what it is there for. And I love that it has things that you can pull apart and read into. But I don't know. And and also, I do want to compliment like the characters a bit to a point. You know, I mean, of course, the first three people who die, we don't ever really get to know that much about them. Um, but I think they're decently well acted for all first time act or amateur actors. I think the character of Franklin is really interesting as kind of like a parallel to the hitchhiker guy, you know, a person who's like a little out of place in their family to have a person in this movie 
who nobody wants to be there and is kind of angry and who seems like our main character for so much of it and has these monologues where you feel bad for him. Like when he's like, when they all go to that first abandoned house and everybody's running up and down the stairs and he's in a wheelchair and he can't go Mm -hmm. anywhere and they've just left him here and he has that monologue where he's so angry. (laughs) Come on, Franklin. It's going to be a fun trip. That character to create him, I think, is really interesting. You know, the actor who played him, um, Pil Parten, like he said that everybody hated him on set. Everybody hated everybody on set. Everybody hated Toby. Everybody hated Paul. He was like, right. I was such a new actor that I did the whole thing method wise. I just was always that guy because he's like, I read the script and I thought, oh, nobody wants this person to be here. So he decided to make Fra- Franklin extra awful. To right. kind of channel that like neediness and rage that he thought that character really had. He yeah. said like when he and Sally were doing that scene where they're fighting over the flashlight, that um, Marilyn Burns, who played Sally, was so mad at him that she wouldn't talk to him but, like between takes. She just oh, hated wow. him. And then to me, one of the best shocks is because you think he is one of our major characters, you know, and you're not expecting a final girl trope yet because that's still new yeah. forming. It's like a nebula cloud that's forming. Um, his death, I think, is one of the most like gasp, gasp, gasping moments. Gasping moments. What do you say? What is your word? For I, that? I, I, I get gasping moments. I'll moment. buy that. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, let's listen to it. By the way, I should have prefaced this by saying this is a podcast with a lot of screaming in your ears. Apologies. But here is Franklin screaming and Sally. Sally, I hear something. Stop. Stop. <laughs> I mean, that to me, that shock, that shock just works like that shock has not aged. It's like if you want a movie that feels like somebody drilling into your spine, it's hard to think of one that does it as effectively as this movie. I agree. I totally agree. Um, And works to this day. It's the reason why when you type in Texas Chainsaw Massacre into whatever like digital format you're using, like a million remakes pop up as well. Like people are going back to this thing because I think there is something that people are trying to capture. I don't know. I'm not versed in all the Matthew McConaughey uh, one or the one that came out in 2003. The McConaughey one was directed by the guy who co-wrote this one. He came back to do that one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think that there's something there, but, you know, I don't know if you can reboot this or remake this because we've seen so many versions of it now that you have to find another way to do it. I think, you know, I referenced in the beginning, like that movie, The Strangers has elements of this movie, Yeah. you know, knock, knock, knock on the door. And then all of a sudden shit's going, going on and you don't know what's going on. You don't know why. And there's no reason to understand why. Yeah. And, you know, so I think I'd rather embrace that. I think you, you know, um. You know, I think that the, those are the things that I, I feel like let's not go backwards because while the story is really interesting, you can't top it. What what can you do? What can you do that's going to make this better? They haven't. I mean, I wrote a paper on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 when I was in college mm-hmm. because that movie, Toby Hooper makes it kind of to finish and get out of like that universal deal that he felt like he never did very well. Um, 
In that movie, the only way he could grapple with making a remake was by making it more comedic, having Dennis Hopper in there. And in that decade, a lot of more serious horror scholarship had come out. You know, people were talking about, like, what does the final girl mean? Impurity, blah, blah, blah. What is, is the sword or is the knife always a dick? You know, and so you have like Dennis Hopper walking around in that movie with the chainsaw at his crotch and the movie being like, yes, we know what we're doing. We're making allusions to like horror scholarship right now and also making a joke of the whole thing. And it's a fun movie to like analyze, but it's not a shocking movie at all. You know, it's not shocking at all. It's just, a, it's kind of like, it feels like a on par with just the rest of the other 80s movies. And it doesn't feel as like, I might use the word evil. This movie feels a little evil, the way that it was made, the way that it is when you watch it. It feels like evil and it feels a little dirty. Yeah, I I guess I just feel like Toby Hooper is not interested necessarily in being like a horror director. I think he had a scary story to tell and that's what he did do. Uh, and I think a lot of these movies now are like, how do we make the horror more scary? And, a, and there's something really pure about these other movies we've talked about where Yes, it's a horror film, but it's not like horror. Like, it's not yeah. leading with like, we're going to gross you out. But I will say that this year, get ready because there's going to be a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, the face of madness has returned oh, or something man. like that. I mean, I'll um, keep my heart open, but like, but like what make you know, I would watch like Richard Linkletter's Texas Ch- Chainsaw Massacre or something I would like watch that. that. Like, I think it has to be made by a genuine dirty hippie. You know, like, cause that's what Toby is. Like, this is a guy who literally for Austin heads, his mom was sitting at the Paramount theater, you know, that is downtown. Um, Mm -hmm. Like it's one of the big South by uh, venues. His mom was sitting in that theater when she went into labor. Like that is the origin of Toby Hooper, you know, and he grew up like watching movies like all the time. He started filming movies. He claims when he was like three years old and like one of his first movies was a version of Frankenstein. And then just as like biography, he becomes the the third film student to go to UT, to the UT film school when they started up, but he doesn't graduate because he's too much of a hippie, of course. They say, allegedly, he was on campus on the day when there was that clock tower shooting at oh, UT, wow. you know, where the sniper shot mm-hmm. 14 people. I mean, imagine your life being marked by random violence like that. But then, like, his first paid job is he does a Peter Paul and documentary, Peter Paul and Mary documentary, where, like, he traveled with them and everybody thought he was a narc because he was, like, a guy with a camera. And so they thought he was maybe an FBI guy keeping tabs on who was in the anti-war movement, talking to Peter, Paul and Mary about it. And then he makes like this hippie horror movie that kind of has a similar vibe. It's like, it's about a commune and it was shot at a commune house. And the house looks a little bit like the ho- like the house here in Texas Chainsaw. I was comparing it, like comparing banisters. But basically all these people live in this commune and there's like a hyper electric crazy spirit. And it, it kind of sounds a little bit like this. The movie is called Eggshells, and in the movie, if you watch it, there's, like, a guy who runs around completely naked, like, you see his whole thing. And that guy became the screenwriter of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, like, they just got together. But it's, like, this area where Austin was just, like, we're down to come up with some stuff, man. Like, what can we make here? I guess we'll make a horror film. The Texas Film Commission is brand new. 
And they're like, well, we need to make movies in Texas. And they gave this movie money to be made, which is crazy. But like Marilyn, who plays Sally, she's really the key. She kind of like connects everybody, gets them to raise money. And then eventually they fuck it all up and they sell the movie to like the mafia on accident before it makes any money. And then they never make any money off of it. Well, I mean, wow, it's a crazy story. And I will say that if anything, I don't want to poo-poo on this new Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is going directly to Netflix TBD on when it's going to uh, be released. But it is keeping true to its Texas roots because the director of the film is a Texan. Um, And, you know, he considers this to be a direct sequel to the 1974 classic. So this is, I don't know if it's a period piece, probably is. David Blue Garcia is from the South Texas border. So maybe, maybe this is the one that will break the curse. Maybe this is the one that will find a new way of doing it. Cause I, like I said, the themes are available, but a redo of it, I think is lame. Like maybe there's a new way to upgrade it. And uh, I'm curious. I'm open. I'm open. I'm open. That's I'm my open. job. I'm open. But you know who was not open? Who? The critics at the time this movie came out, they thought it was gross as hell. And they were oh, not happy. Yeah, of course. People were leaving all. the theater, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody was liking this. Nobody was liking this. Um, Harper's Magazine called it a vile little piece of sick crap, a particularly foul item in the currently developing hardcore pornography of murder, a simple exploitation film designed to milk a few more bucks out of the throng of shuffling wretches who still gather in those dank caverns for the scab picking of the human spirit. That is a horror film review if I've ever read one. And um, for the LA Times, a critic named Linda Gross uh, wrote that it is a despicable film about five young people traveling through the desolate flatlands of Texas um, that for no apparent reason except severe subnormal intelligence, they decide to stay with a hitchhiker and his insane family. She's getting the facts a little bit yeah, wrong here. That's those but words. she has um, some stats. She says production notes boast that the parts of eight cows, two dogs, a cat, two deer, three goats, two real human skeletons, one chicken, and an armadillo were used. And there were only 10 plastic bones in the whole set. Well, the writers seem to have been less concerned with a plastic script. And then she says that torture and gruesome death through a filtered lens are still ugly and obscene. Craziness handled without sensitivity is a degrading, senseless misuse of film. And Marilyn Burns, as the only surviving victim, conveys a Cloris Leachman-like quality and shows promise as an actress in a role that just calls for some strong lung power, which I would say was a huge compliment. Cloris Leachman, as we remember, she had just won the Best Supporting Actress three years earlier for the last picture show, which we covered on this show. I agree. And I actually think Marilyn Burns is fantastic in this movie. I think she's very, very good. I do, too. I I think she's very, very good as well. I mean, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. And... You know, the way I think about this movie is, yes, I would put this into outer space because I think it represents something really good that is being uh, not parodied, but still being done today. Uh, You know, that you see you see all the tentacles of this and it still is effective. It's still amazing. And it it goes to show you how much you can do without gore and making something that's so terrifying. Um, I, I, I loved it. I love my experience with this movie. I'm so glad I was nervous about you watching it for the first time. Yeah, no, I I really was. I was I'm I'm all on board. So, I mean, I mean, what about you? Yeah. I'm a little less convinced, but I am open to keep talking about it and thinking about it. Um but it, we are next week going to get super gory again. So next week okay. is the movie with the gore that you might have been worried about today. Okay. 
Oh boy. All uh-huh. right, what are we going to be watching? I am so excited to be watching this. It's one of the best newer horror films made in the last few years. The movie is from 2016. It is directed by Julia de Cornell, who just had a movie come out called Titan. The film is raw. It is about, Ooh, uh, it's about in this. French. Okay. It's in French. It's about a young girl who goes to a veterinary school where everybody gets drunk and all hell breaks loose. It is <sighs> really wild. And I'm excited for you to see it. Okay. All right. I'm ready for it, Amy. I'm, 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 uh, all right, I'm ready. You'll be good. What if you have a subscription to, to Prime or to Netflix, it's on there right now even. It is By the there. way, I tried to watch this on Prime and I was getting commercials for fucking Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. What the hell? What? I pay for Prime. Screw that. Prime. I watched it on Shudder. Okay. Think. There you go. Um, Amy, it's a pleasure talking to you about this movie and we will see you next week for Raw. Ugh. Oh, you're going to love it. You know, because Raw's in French, we can't play too much of the movie, but there's a song in the movie that I love that is one of my favorite scenes. So we'll just play that. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a white castle slider is a white castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon so pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider 1921 bacon cheese slider or chicken bacon ranch slider and also get a small fry for just five dollars with the five dollar bacon bundle white castle follow your crave
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.